Reed, I'm not sure if you've heard this or not, but there's a lot of consumer packaged goods companies that are making packages smaller nowadays in order to kind of offset sort of the inflation that's happening and the, the rise of prices. Have you heard about this? I thought this was going to have something to do with bacon. Uh, no, I have not. It's everything from like cereal to tuna fish to coffee. You know, maybe this is a higher level trend that we we need to really start looking at things because, you know, overall, don't you think that portion sizes here in the U.S. are a little bit bigger than they should be? Well, yeah. I mean, it's like, you know, you go to a, like a fast food restaurant. There is no small, first off. And then they hand you a cup the size of a Yeti. Like, what am I supposed to do with this? Doritos came out and said that there are five less Doritos in every one of their snack size packages now. Doesn't seem to make, well, I mean, I guess it makes sense. People smarter than me have been involved, but when you fill up half the bag with air, I feel like I could just make the bag smaller. Welcome to Touchpoint, a podcast dedicated to discussions on digital marketing and patient engagement strategies for hospitals, health systems, and physician practices. In this podcast, we'll dive deep into digital tools, solutions, and strategies that are impacting our industry today. We hope to share a lot of great information with you and have fun along the way. Thanks for joining us. Now, here are your hosts. Welcome to episode number 268 of Touchpoint. I'm Reed Smith, and that is Chris Boyer. Hey, Reed, I'm over here counting the number of potato chips in my snack size bag here to make sure I'm getting the right amount. Yeah, it's like you want to keep a tally, like in the pantry or something, every time you open a bag of chips. Well, welcome one and all to the show. Thank you so much for tuning in for yet another week of Touchpoint. A couple of quick things I want to mention before we jump into today's episode. Touchpoint.health is the website. You can uh, navigate over there. There's a lot of other great shows on the network, not just the one you're listening to, but you can check those out. You can listen and subscribe to any of those. Check out the show host, the topics, learn more about the show that you're listening to today, all that kind of fun stuff. But one thing, one favor... While you're there, there's something called the TPS report. You'll see it up there in the top navigation of the website. Sign up. Give us your email address. We promise we won't spam you to death. All it does is uh, sign you up for a, an email newsletter. It comes out each Monday. Well, I'd say are there 52 Mondays in a year or thereabout. Probably comes out 47 of those or something. You know. Anyway, <laughs> we'll, we'll take a holiday off here and there. But basically, every Monday, you'll get an email from us with five articles to get your week started. And that's it. So uh, I'll tell you what. Let's pause here for just one second, and uh, we'll be back with today's show. Chris, in today's digital age, your online reputation, as we all know, is crucial. With customers relying on online reviews, your first impression is also compared directly with your competitors. Sure is. And Reed, consider this. 86% of patients today read online reviews and 73% demand that that healthcare provider has a minimum four-star rating. Demand. They demand it. Yeah, they do. Well, to stand out, choose Reputation to help amplify your brand and to build trust. Be the provider of choice in your area, understand patient sentiment, get actionable insights, and even foster patient loyalty. And look, here's the easy way you could do that. All you need to do is go visit reputation.com slash touchpoint. That's reputation.com slash touchpoint, where you can download their healthcare online reputation management guide 
and build a reputation that performs for you. So today, Reed, we're going to be talking about content marketing and creating thought leadership content for your organization. I think that's something that a lot of hospitals and health systems are doing a lot of lately. Yeah, this is something certainly, you know, as I've gotten back in on the hospital side of the equation, content development, content marketing, content planning. I mean, it's a topic, right? It's a big topic and a big focus, uh, both for skill sets and employees and things like that, that you may be adding to the team, as well as just kind of the ongoing thought process around it. I think it makes sense for us to create a lot of great content because, quite frankly, the last two years have shown that there's been a lot of interest in various different types of healthcare conditions, pandemic being most notable about that. And quite frankly, there are a lot of questions that our audiences sometimes have when we're in a hospital or health system that good content marketing can kind of help to address that. That's right. We got to become Google. Well, that's the problem, though. I hear that a lot, right? It's like we got to create all this content. And even when you talk about like health library content, is our role to become like Google or like WebMD? Or what is our role in all of this? And what's our best way to do this? Particularly sensory, there's a lot of content that's out there now, a whole bunch of content. And there's a lot of noise. So how do we kind of reduce that quote-unquote signal-to-noise ratio when we do our content marketing? That's what we're going to jump into today. Yeah, absolutely. And there's always room at the top, right? So if you have a better widget, it doesn't matter how crowded the industry is, if you can be the best. So I know that's a little bit hard and kind of a maybe a leap sometimes when you're thinking about content and content creation. But yeah, we'll we'll dig in and maybe let's start with uh, some trends. Uh, an article you found, Chris, from contently.com, State of Healthcare Content Marketing, Five Trends Transforming the Industry. Right. And this actually comes from a study that they did to look at content marketing in general. And they start off by saying good medicine, like good content comes down to trust and results. That was true before digital came around. Mm -hmm. And it's even more true now, even though it's a little bit complicated. This is chock full of a lot of good stats. And so again, we'll link to all this in the, uh, in the show notes. Google, they say, handles more than 1 billion health questions. However, over a third of U.S. adults have low health literacy. I assume that's $1 billion a year, not a day. Weber Shanwick, big, uh, big firm uh, agency kind of in, in the healthcare space. Well, a lot of spaces, I guess. But they did a recent uh, survey of 1,700 adults. 52% were concerned with today's health-related information is either false or misleading. You know, the idea here is third of adults don't have a real uh, high uh, acumen as it relates to you know what it is that they're searching for that's why they're searching i guess but then there's also you know a big chunk that are concerned about the information they're finding so that poses an interesting dilemma for people that are engaging in content creation content marketing thought leadership content i think it's very important that we shouldn't give up and just say well we're not going to create any content most importantly i think we as health systems, as physicians, as insurers, even healthcare companies, we have to really improve the way we do our healthcare content marketing, which kind of leads to five trends they found that in this study that they did. The first one, and, and obviously this is somewhat timely over the last couple of years, but they talk about the fact that COVID stories do perform and do perform really well, but they have to be done right. 
I mean, this was obviously top of everybody's mind. And so people were looking for the information initially. But I think even now, two years in, you have to kind of be thinking about uh, the evergreen information that's out there, right? There's an, they talk in here about the fact that there's an overabundance of health content online, but it mostly consists of evergreen information on established domains like WebMD or uh, even LiveStrong as it relates to you know oncology, you know things like that. They say here that some of the most top performing stories they found in the survey that they did actually come from companies that are not going after evergreen content. Instead, they're putting their unique spin on it. They're either trying to remain topical, timely, or they put their unique point of view in this. And they say if, if organizations like health systems want to compete with WebMDs of the world, they have to drive awareness first to sort of these original stories and then start to build that trust to increase their kind of authority, their domain expertise, I should say, so that they can then give access to all of this more evergreen content. So it's kind of like a two-pronged approach. You need to catch their attention with this custom content and then lead them to sort of the, the wide breadth of evergreen content that you have. This is an interesting uh, quote that's kind of in this this part of the article, and it comes from Amy O'Connor. She's editor in chief of uh, Health and Nation. It says in, in the health category, there's no such thing as a generalist. So think about what your audience is searching for. Unless you're like an AP or Reuters, it's really hard to cover the news, and nobody wants you to because it's already out there. So that's the first big trend that they're seeing. Create content that's timely and unique to you. I think that makes all sense. Let's pivot to the second trend here where they say that while healthcare traditionally is not where most progressive content marketing organizations are, there is a playbook that they can follow. So they start off by saying that 72 healthcare companies that have qualified for the Fortune 1000 list in 2020, of those 72, only 15% of them had some kind of blog or resource center on their website. And 30 more had limited content outputs, such as like newsrooms that are kind of hidden on their website. Yeah, We're still trying to catch up, right? Of our 72, more than half are not really actively doing content marketing. Everybody had to have a blog a few years ago. And then after a while, it was kind of like, oh, gosh, like, let's see, we haven't had an update since 2018. And that's how it gets buried in the footer, right, that they're talking about here or whatever. So, but it talks in here about the fact that companies, they, they recommend, should route a massive portion of their uh, broadcasting budgets, TV, radio, et cetera, to digital and specifically digital content that helps educate consumers while staying within the industry rules and regulations. Obviously, that that relates more to some some of the other, uh, like maybe MedDevice and Pharma. We talk about rules and regs and and that kind of thing. But but again, routing a lot of that large budget to the content creation side. Even LinkedIn weighed in recently and said that seventy eight percent of marketers that they polled expect budgets for online content to increase as a result of the pandemic. Now, there's an interesting quote in here, again, by Amy O'Connor. She, she indicates to have someone who is a content expert craft engaging, effective, high-impact stories, but do that with the help of a medical expert who can fact-check and reality-check what you're writing. So imagine that. You have people that are really good at content writing, and then, of course, your medical experts combine that together with SEO, that is ultimately a way for you to kind of rise up above everybody else. 
Number three on the list, telemedicine and health tech companies are leading the field. Again, telemedicine is very obviously top of mind um, at this point, right? It's always top of mind, right? But really what it is, it's a different type of company is really what they're trying to put forward here. They're digital first brands. They're ones that see digital as a competitive advantage. They say here that uh, according to Stanford's Persuasive Technology Lab, that sounds like an interesting lab to work at, if you think about it, the Persuasive like Technology that. Lab. Te- uh, yeah, Stanford's <laughs> Persuasive Technology Lab. Yeah. The, the PTL. <laughs> the PTL. Um, over at the PTL, they found that 46% of people believe that the design look is the number one indicator of your credibility. So if how you come to your website really is an indicator of your authoritativeness. So here they're saying is because these telehealth and health tech companies are digital first, They create this outstanding visual view that highlights their content and, in effect, gives them a competitive advantage. It does. Yeah, they they lean into this idea of, you know, the visual aspect of it. So, again, you know, what we're not saying is this is only about, you know, just writing words, you know, or the kind of traditional blog, right? So, they're talking here about animated videos, infographics, etc. They become engaging and says in here that 75% of marketers drive better ROI when they are, when they use visuals with their content. Um, and so this is again, kind of part of a study that they had done. So again, I think to your point, you know, these are kind of technology leading companies and they're bringing on people that are thinking in this way. Yeah. Well, think about the impact of that though, on how you present your blog and how you're presenting that kind of content in your digital properties. It becomes very important because in effect, it you know establishes a sort of a biased trust in what you do in terms of your content. Your content becomes more meaningful to people, which leads to the fourth trend here, Reed, which I think is really interesting. Corporate social responsibilities uh, is a use case that is one that healthcare should really lean into. We all know that a lot of people have a negative view of U.S. healthcare system. We're seeing the studies all throughout the the pandemic. We've seen that even before the pandemic. Given the fact that corporate social responsibility is something that's really top of mind to people, we need to highlight that and bring that into our content marketing. Don't bury it in your diversity, equity, and inclusion page of your website. Bring it out in all of the content that you're doing. Well, last one on the list, which I think is really interesting, is uh, reports and data you know, being the biggest differentiator. And so what they're really leaning into is, you know, these industries, uh, they mentioned things like finance, for example, but healthcare specifically, data-driven industries, really gives you an insight into the types of content to create. And so we, we have that opportunity. So how are you looking at that data that you have to inform the content strategy? Well, and that's a really important topic and one that we're going to dive into a little bit deeper later on in the show with our interview with Kristen Folder. Uh, That's coming up. But before then, we're going to take a brief pause. And then what we're going to do is we're going to come back and read. You and I are going to talk about how we could stop burying content signal in all the noise that's out there. We'll do that right after this break. Coming soon from Greystone, Bowstring, and Touchpoint Media, live from HCIC, a new podcast that brings you front row access to the latest innovative strategies that are shaping tomorrow's healthcare industry. In this 12-part series, as recorded live at the Healthcare Internet Conference, we'll hear from industry experts such as Paul Madsen of the Cleveland Clinic, Kathy Smith of Roper St. Francis Healthcare, David Feinberg from Mount Sinai Health System, Rose Glenn from Michigan Medicine, and many others. 
Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or your favorite podcasting platform. This podcast series is brought to you by Greystone.net, Bowstring, and Touchpoint Media. Reed, now we're going to jump into that sort of that whole signal to noise ratio thing that happens a lot, right? There is a lot of content that's out there. We talked about the importance of content. We found an article off of the Content Marketing Institute website, one of our most favorite online sites to go to when we start talking about content, about how to stop burying your content signal in so much noise. Start off by saying in 2022, there is even more importance on creating digital content and content-driven experiences. That's sort of top of mind to all organizations now that are developing that. They even highlight a new media company in the gaming space that's ramping up their article production. Get this. Their goal is to create 30,000 new posts every year. Good gracious. So this is, this is a quantity play. And they say here that they, they, they'll never compete if they dive a mile deep into the topics. They're looking to just compete against people that are publishing every day. In effect, their, their thought here is more content equates to more audiences, which equates to more value. Hmm. But we just talked about before the break that actually that's not the route forward for success. I don't think many of our health systems can commit to that many posts a year. I mean, one a week, I I would say would be ambitious for some, but for them, you know, they're talking here about going from, you know, 25 to 500 a week. <laughs> Whew, that's, that's crazy. Uh, man. Well, and, and part of that is not going to do it alone, right? We've heard about the rise of this AI technology that's helping to create content. Right. And that's really a lot of what they're doing. In 2022, with the help of technology, more and more content is going to be created faster than any time in history. And that's the challenge here is that that's a lot of noise. The article then pivots to saying, well, how do we get through this, right? How do we separate signal to noise ratio? And spoiler alert, it's not by a quantity play, right? It's more of a quality play. I mean, if you think about most hospitals and healthcare organizations, um, you know, they, they are not, as we've kind of said leading up to this the idea of competing with webmd or or the aforementioned live strong in the cancer space or something like that is just not possible i don't think i mean you know they're so far ahead already so it's not like we're both starting from zero and see who can get there first they've long since started there's no way to play catch up now most people are, are coming to our websites because of a utility need, you know, to schedule or pay a bill or something like that. So how do we, you know, kind of interlace this content in a way that's effective and, um, you know, can provide value to our communities? One thing that they point out is that most marketers actually tend away from being, you know, like these unique content creators because, Quite honestly, the measurement around content marketing is more about how many people engage with that particular post. They're going for the the quantity play. The trick here is we got to remove those metrics. We got to look for more about how people are truly engaged with your content and how that content is helping to define your brand, your voice, and ultimately action within your organization. And let me say this. I'm not opposed to the quantity play. I just don't know how we pull it off. Yeah. I'm not saying it's not 
effective. You know, I mean, again, it's a little more of the shotgun approach of just like, let's just do more and we'll get more. I mean, you have a lot of waste in there too, but you're going to get more ultimately. But, you know, again, I just don't, I don't know how we do that effectively. So we've got to look at the more precision piece. That kind of leads to how do we separate that signal and noise ratio, right? To help differentiate content and actually make the right people care. So they, they lay out a couple of tips here. The first is to create conscious content experiences. <laughs> okay, that sounds weird to say. I like that. The really involving content creators who knowingly and purposely evolve the narrative of what they're writing about as the audience needs change. So your content creators in your organization, they should be heavily involved with understanding what people are talking about at that particular point in time. And boy, over the last few years, we figured out how the healthcare conversation shifts very rapidly. So they have to be you know, right on the pulse of what's happening in, in that latest healthcare news that's out there, not only on a national level, but also in your local community. And they say here, you don't have to lock yourself into a fixed editorial box that focuses only on thought leadership research or how-to articles, you could change your editorial focus as your audience's needs change over time. So I guess they're saying here, you got to be very aware of what people are caring about and talking about and be nimble enough to kind of shift your content to support that. The next one they they mentioned, which I think is applicable to, to healthcare, is to focus on different, not better. Different, not better. You know, they're talking here in the article about the fact that a lot of content marketers try to focus on better research uh, or maybe a more provocative version of the same thought leadership written somewhere else, right? Or something like that. And that's okay if you have a real point of view or opinion or, you know, you're at an organization that really has a, a leader in that space. Maybe you can do some of that. But they say, rather than focusing on, you know, the, the deeper piece, the, the better piece, you know, the more timely advice or something like that, is to look, you know, what, what is different? What can you do that's, that's a little bit of a different take, a little bit of a different viewpoint, uh, and that kind of thing? And an example they give in here is a company that created a community, an online content resource to help financial advisors discover the best new books to read. It wasn't better than the competition. It was just a different thing. Hmm. So instead of like, hey, here's a book club, you know, they kind of found a little bit of a different angle. So again, not better, but but different. Not better, but different. And in fact, that leads to the third point they raise here is to remember that quality actually wins in the long run. Many people feel, most content teams feel, that focusing on spending more time on fewer pieces produces a lot better content. Let's put it that way, right? Rather than focusing on that five, that 30,000 content pieces a year, you want to focus on producing deep, thoughtful pieces that may take a little while to do. It resonates a little bit you know, a little bit more effectively, they highlight, you know, there's a lot of different organizations that are not healthcare related that focus on creating content that has deep research, deep analysis. Uh, it contextualizes what's going on in the marketplace. It's become now a resource for their audiences to appreciate every kind of piece of content they produce. We want to, as health systems, do the same thing when it comes to healthcare in our communities. We want people to turn to us. So, Focus on quality here rather than quantity. 
That's right. And the last one here is really kind of summing up a lot of these points, which is uh, to be the right signal to the right audience. So I think one is just understanding that not everybody's your audience. I mean, our podcast is a good example of that. We're not going to compete with This American Life, you know, that gets millions of downloads because, you know, we have a finite amount of people that would see our content is uh, not just interesting, but useful or important to them or, or something like that. So they're talking here about creating content because you have something to offer that specific desired audience. And to those who care, you become the signal. To those who don't, you're just noise. Right? It's okay that you know you don't have something for everybody, right? This goes back to being different, not better. Quality wins in the long run. That content experience, all of it kind of wraps up into this. So that's really as we look as content marketers in 2022 and beyond, we should be focusing less on just creating a whole, churning out a lot of content and focusing in on those things that we we just discussed, right? The good quality content. That's kind of naturally leads to this interview that I had. I recently sat down with Kristen Folder, who's the owner of Huracy, a brand and communications agency. She and I have known each other for years. We actually worked together in our past. And we talked a lot about a particular approach that she takes when she's working with organizations on creating content to support their brand or support their thought leadership initiatives or what have you. And it really is about using data as a way to build trust and thought ownership in this space. It was a really fascinating interview. So we'll listen to that after the break. And then Reed and I will be back to close out the show. Welcome back to the Ask the Expert segment of the podcast. And today I am so delighted to have someone back on the show, uh, Kristen Falder. Welcome back to our podcast. Thanks so much, Chris. I'm so happy to be back and talking to you again. Well, Kristen, you and I talk to each other quite regularly, but it's been way too long since we had you back on the show. So I'm glad you're here today. Yeah, me too. I mean, you and I talk about this stuff all the time, just uh, personally and professionally. Yeah. So I think it's, it's great. To, why, why not hit record and talk about it where maybe it will prove valuable to somebody listening? Absolutely. But before we jump in, it may be there may be some people listening in that do not know about you and your company, your background. Would you mind sharing a little bit about yourself? Yeah, of course. So I say that I'm a communication strategist. So what does that mean? It means that I help companies leverage external communication strategies and tactics to meet their business goals. So as long as I can remember, I've been obsessed with communicating and, and understanding how somebody can communicate better, more effectively, especially with the audiences that they're trying to meet. I read books and I study and I'm you know, super into and geeky about psychology and and so, but I, but I love doing it from a professional standpoint. And so my firm, Hearsay, addresses an organization's communications needs and challenges in six specific areas. So those areas are PR and media, social media, messaging, kind of how you talk about your company and the foundation setting messages that you take out to the world, uh, media and speaking training, crisis communications, and content. And our expertise really lies in doing that for tech-centric companies. So from startups to established brands, we work with companies where technology is central to their business. Yeah. And because of that, you work in the healthcare space with people that we do know, right? Yep. Yep. You got it. We have a lot of contacts in, in common. 
Kristen, I'm excited to get into today's topic because it kind of is a great intersection. Our focus of our show is typically for hospitals and health systems to talk about using digital and digital technology to help improve their their efforts. And we also talk a lot about marketing, communications, and experience. Like sort of the the topic today that we're gonna we're gonna jump into marries both of those together in a really nice way. And that's using data to help tell your story. What does that mean, using data to tell your story? Yeah, so, you know, companies, organizations, businesses, they all have their messages, their stories. You know, who are they? Why do they exist? You know, we, we've all seen or heard uh, the Simon Sinek talk about, you know, why you do what you do, not what you do. And so there's that kind of messaging and story that, that we all are comfortable and hear a lot about. But the, the idea of using data to tell your story really kind of is the next level down, if you will. And so the story kind of think about that as like 50 or 60,000 feet and how you're talking about your organization and why you exist. But the, the story that you and I are talking about today is really taking that out to your audiences more through, think, thought leadership. I know you and I had talked about that before, and, and some people hear thought leadership, and I think they hear it a lot, and it kind of just goes in one ear and out the other. And what does that mean? And it really is quite simple in the description and quite complex in actually the execution. In the description, it is simply establishing yourself as a thought leader in your industry. So I work with a client whose audience is um, health system marketers, VP of marketing and CMOs. So thought leadership would be giving those VPs of marketing and CMOs of health systems information that is valuable to their business and their professional lives. And so that's really where thought leadership comes in, what it means. Executing on it, and we'll get into this in a little bit, is a little bit harder than just defining it. But it really is, you know, picking up a newspaper and reading about what's happening in Ukraine right now and how we got to where we are and having somebody as a as a historian or an expert on Russia, for example, weighing in on why we are at this moment. That right there is a perfect example of modern day thought leadership. And when you think about that in many different ways, I know Reed and I have talked about a lot over the last two years, there's been a lot of studies around like trust and where patients turn to for healthcare information. There's a lot of confusion, obviously, right? The the science changed and evolved and the, you know, the CDC and the news and political leaders, et cetera. But what was consistent across all of that is that people turn to physicians and healthcare providers as sort of the authoritative source of truth uh, around the pandemic and around other health uh, decisions that are being made in the in their communities. So in effect, by even positioning your experts at your health system, in effect, what we're doing is we're, we're engaging in thought leadership. Absolutely. It's thought leadership on the part of the expert themselves, right? The physician, for example, that you're talking about, and the health system. I grew up in in Michigan, right, outside of Detroit. So I'm going to just use Henry Ford Hospital as an example. If Henry Ford puts out a communication from one of their doctors, I'm seeing that doctor, but I'm also seeing comma, heart specialist, cardiologist at Henry Ford. And so Henry Ford then rises up for me. And if I see that continuously and I'm constantly getting valuable, helpful information for me, for my family's health and welfare... 
I am going to think Henry Ford when I need to choose where to go for healthcare. It's both the individual and the organization. Yeah, that's like a two-pronged approach. You get both for the benefit of one, so to speak, or, or I'm not sure I said that right, but you know what I mean. In this space, there's a lot of people vying for, I guess, thought leadership online. Is that fair to say? I mean, there's a lot of people out there kind of delving in information. You know, there's a whole rise of the influencers trying to take some kind of ownership. I think we're all vying for attention. So tell me uh, your, your perspective on that. Businesses and organizations, how can they start to position themselves better as experts in this kind of noisy space that we live in? Chris, I love that you said that, and we hadn't even talked about that. This is unbelievable. One of the things that I have noticed recently... I spend a lot of time working with health tech companies. And one of the things, uh, we're in a really interesting moment right now where technologies in this space are exploding. Since 2020, as you know, we have seen this area explode. Telehealth, remote patient monitoring, patient engagement tools, right? It is crazy the amount of companies that are getting into this space. And what that does is that creates a huge challenge for those companies to distinguish themselves from the pack. So as you are talking to health systems who are making choices about what digital technologies to look for to help communicate with their patients and engage their communities and execute on telehealth, for example, they're going out to the world to look at what company is best for them, what tool is best for them. And it is so noisy. It's one of my, I would say the biggest challenge and where I find a little lack of confidence in the in the healthcare space is that companies haven't mastered, if you will, the ability to communicate and communicate effectively about their technology, their company, their story, and how they're distinct from others in the space. So I have gone from one digital company's website to another and read the same verbiage, same language, same buzzwords on everyone. And I work in this space and I leave those and I don't understand what they do. And that's a problem. And I keep thinking, we've got to get better than this. They need to leverage their story and their messaging to stand out and connect with their audiences. And one way is using data to do so. Because as you mentioned, people look to experts to make sense of the world. And so we're going to be looking to these people to help us through this. And if they're not speaking clearly or concisely, we're going to go to somebody who is. So data helps to clarify complex stories. Yes, it helps to clarify the story. It also helps to set up the story and lay the foundation. So I'll explain that. So basically, so I had mentioned that I have a customer or a client in this space who, who again, their audience is, is marketers at health systems. And so what we did is we ran a study back in the summer, third-party research. Some companies have proprietary data. If they're an AI company, if they're an analytics, they can look at and go into their own data and leverage it. A lot of times it's gathering data from a third party working with a research firm. And so that's what we did. We turned outward and looked at about 2,000 consumers and just asked some questions about their experience communicating with their doctors and their doctor's offices, specifically through the pandemic. And some of the things that we found were 50% of US adults 
did not receive information about COVID-19 or the vaccine from their doctor. That's troubling a year into the pandemic, right? We found things like 50% have higher expectations for their doctors. Nearly a quarter said that their opinions had changed of their doctors since COVID. And so what that does is that lays a solid foundation for this company that I'm talking about in the health tech field to be able to say, we have data that specifically tells me what your audience is, their pain points, their needs, their desires. They haven't heard from you. They need to hear from you. And here's what they want to hear from you. And then they can go into more specific company positioning about here's how we help you do that. But that first part of saying, I understand your audience that you're trying to reach, their pain points, is critical in establishing trust between the two entities, right? In this case, a B2B company. And so it really helps them leverage data to um, establish trust, but leverage data to say, I am a leader because I understand what the audience needs. I can then create a technology and solutions to address those needs. And that's where that thought leadership and that kind of clarification comes in. You know, what you, as you're describing this, Kristen, I was thinking, you know, gathering that data is important for these organizations to use to understand where those pain points are in order to solve those, those problems. But it, it almost serves a double purpose. So when you're out there gathering data about, let's say what, you know, let's say you're trying to solve a particular problem, let's say a telehealth problem or whatever it might be, and you're, you're researching all about all this data about how customers use telemedicine. That very same data analysis that you're doing to help inform your product build can also be used for your thought leadership. Absolutely. I mean, this this survey that I'm talking about, you know, was picked up. I don't know if we got 15, 20 pieces of coverage in the media. So now we're talking earned media where the, you know, potential prospects is seeing this work and seeing the company name, going back to the Henry Ford example that we were talking about with thought leadership. When you see a company's name, when you see the name of a leader, you start to understand their position, their point of view, where they are in the industry, where they sit, what they believe. And those are the things that make somebody want to work with somebody, right? We want to work with people that we trust. And so if you're a health system marketer, for example, and you're looking to Becker's and you're looking to modern healthcare and you're looking to healthcare IT news every day and you're skimming those publications for information that would be relevant about, you know, the technology or the tools or the people that you need to connect with. And you're seeing leaders that are saying things that connect with you at a problem solution level, or, you know, I see what these people are doing. And I think that's so fascinating. I need to connect with them. And that's really where that key comes in, right? Where you're starting to see people out sharing the same channels that you share and connecting with them on that point of view level and that perspective and trusting that so that you can then, you know, potentially work together or leverage them within your organization. There are many different ways that data can be used, right, in in these platforms. So tell me a little bit about how we can use data in, in multiple different ways in thought leadership. Well, first of all, numbers help us make sense of what's happening around us, right? So You and I have been talking about the pandemic, how many cases of COVID-19, who is dying of the virus, how many are vaccinated, how many, you know, what are the caseloads in my own community? So I know whether I should mask or unmask or those numbers and figures 
are, it's really clear right now that they've helped us navigate the world. They do it every day, all day. We're always looking at numbers to make sense of everything, but it's very clear over the past two years how we've used numbers. So I like to use that example. They set a benchmark and they take pulse of an audience, right? So you can, again, establish where people are today. So that survey that I've been talking about we just repeat it. We haven't launched the findings yet, so I'm not going to share them here and usurp the, the launch, but we, we are establishing where we are six to eight months later. Have we made progress along that lack of communication? Have we closed that gap between provider and patient, for example? And so they really set a benchmark about where an industry is, where we need to kind of plug holes. And the Data, when you collect and share the data, you get to own it. So if you're a company that's collecting it, you get to own that data and the story that goes around it. One of the examples that I like to use is, you know, a disaster recovery company. And so if they want to establish themselves as an expert resource in the minds of their customers and process prospects, people who would buy disaster recovery software, they can collect data from end users and paint a picture of what those end users are, are like, their pain points that we talked about, their current reality. And then they share that with the prospecting customers. We don't only understand your pain points, and this isn't just things that we're talking about. We understand it in data. We understand it. We can quantify their pain points and their needs, and we can help you address them. And so to, to your question, why data? We can qualitatively do a lot of things. We work with a lot of companies that qualitatively say, or claim, et cetera, right? Most of the companies that we're dealing with on a day-to-day basis do that qualification, right? But quantification and quantifying a problem is a whole different ballgame. It puts it into a different light and it sets it in stone as the reality, right? Like this is the reality of this audience or, or this group that I'm looking at. And so that's why data, it, it is like, it's the difference between me standing out in the middle of Nashville, where I live downtown with a megaphone, just screaming about what I believe about something versus using numbers from a, from a, a credible source and study that I found about why people, you know, what people believe about that. And so it really anchors your thought leaders in fact. I like that. Uh, you know, the other half of my job is I do a lot of marketing research and I am a big believer in both using uh, quantifiable and qualifiable data, right? Two different types of data sets to kind of inform and tell the story. But I think ultimately we are, as people, we're, we're attracted to numbers because numbers help, help us do all of those things that you mentioned. And it gives us context. I think that's why there's a big rise about infographics. And, you know, people just love that because if you present your data the right way, you could tell a very impactful story in very few words, right? Like a, what's that old adage, right? A picture is worth a thousand words. Well, data, if done right, can be worth, you know, 10,000 words. It's unbelievable. I'll, I'll use a different example that I love examples because I think that, you know, people who don't live it and breathe it like me go, oh, I can see how they got there, right? Um, and so I love examples. We work with a technology company that's in the uh, security space, so weapons detection. And we commissioned a survey of Americans because we hypothesized that people are anxious to go to places, particularly places that have had a mass shooting, for example, a movie theater or a school or a grocery store. We've had more and more of late, of course, which is super upsetting. But we wanted to quantify the toll that gun violence takes on Americans. 
And so we asked Americans things like, do you check for exits when you go to the movie theater? And our hypothesis was that they do. And the data came back and it was shocking just how many Americans are nervous or anxious or, you know, just look over your shoulder when you go to a movie theater. It doesn't mean Americans are not going to movie theaters. What it does was it it set in stone, it quantified and colored a picture and gave us that context that you were just talking about of maybe this is why we as Americans are super anxious right now. Or, right, we were able to quantify just how on edge we all are. It didn't give a solution for that, unfortunately, but it did demonstrate where we all are as a collective society and helped from that point of view for this particular project to say, wow, we are all, we could quantify that. Now what do we do about it, right? Now do we hold hands and sing kumbaya and can we ever get to that point again? But, but that really sets that, you know, it's like a race and that's your starting point. Once you understand what you're dealing with, then you can move forward. And so that's really where we like to help companies and why I love data as, a, as, a, as an example of how you can really catapult your thought leadership because it can just establish you in this space and give you kind of that platform from which you can you know, start sh- shouting your story. Okay, so that begs the question though, where do you get that data from, right? Is it proprietary versus third party? What's your perspective on that? Because doing your own kind of data studies can can be an, a very exhaustive thing, right, for an organization to do. Yet there's a lot of data available out there through other sources. So how do you come down on that? What is, what is your approach for proprietary versus third party? Typically, my question to clients is always, do you have data? If the answer is yes, can we get to said data, right? And will it be... Um, reliable to a data scientist, right? Because any company that has data and is available and is mining that data, they will have a data scientist or somebody within the data field that can say, this is accurate data or this isn't up to snuff yet, right? If we went out publicly with this data, it's not wide enough, the audience is not census data or whatever, right? There are different reasons that the data would not be accurate enough to use proprietarily for the for the moment. Typically, we get third-party data for for clients. And the reason that we typically go for third-party data is because then we can target the audience that we want, meaning um, a lot of times it's consumers, right? Because it's the users or the end users of the the B2B prospect that you're going to. So third-party research allows you to get that and to ensure that the data is that you're getting enough, you know, for us from a media perspective, Um, And looking at the American population, you need to have at least a thousand responses. And so, you know, more is better. We like to do gender census, race census, regional census. So you get to do all those things with third party. But I have worked a lot with proprietary data, like I said, when it's there. And if you have proprietary data and somebody who can help mine it, you're looking at a goldmine of quarterly reports on the, you know, the storyline that you choose. What story is that data telling? And you go out quarterly with that content, and then it gets to the point where your audience starts looking to you, and they start looking for that quarterly report. And that becomes super valuable for your thought leadership, for your company, for your content, and you do a lot of talking about content. But I mean, once you start going down this road of proprietary, I mean, it's it's a marathon, right? You want to keep that data going because... 
I, for all the aforementioned uh, reasons why data is so powerful, you need to keep that continuity of data going. So again, it, it really depends on how far into this that you want to go. If it's critical to your business, then that proprietary data and ongoing tracking of that of that data that you're collecting can tell a really in, informative story about you and your your position. Oh my gosh, it could be it could be so valuable. You know, one example is an app analytics company that I worked with years and years ago in a different space of technology, but they had proprietary data of how many people were dead. like this is, you know, when when we were at the beginning of apps, people how many people were downloading apps, how many people were disposing of them, how many times they were opening them. That was huge because app companies, technology companies really cared about that right around the Christmas holiday when people everybody got their phones. You saw huge spikes in app downloads and app, you know, deletions. And so every quarter they were coming out with data and it really showed not just where they stood and that the fact that they were leaders in this, but it showed trends. So what's happening with apps? And so that they not they could not just tell like here are the data that we're finding, but here are the trends we're seeing over months, years. And what's interesting about what you said, Chris, is I will agree and push back a little in that. If you have proprietary data that you're leveraging, like an app analytics company would be, for example, you have, it's constantly regenerating and in there. And once you have a report and you've done it a couple of times and you're working with somebody who's an expert, you know what you're looking for. And it, it, it takes time. You're still going to have to go in and find the data that's relevant and up to date, but it becomes, you know what you're looking for, you know, the questions that you're searching for, the data that you're tabulating. And it becomes a very repeatable process. So it doesn't have to feel like such a big lift if you've got it down, right? And you know what you're looking for to repeat. You've already set the, be- the, set the benchmark and you're moving forward. I want to end with something that you refer to as the dinner party test. Tell me about that. What is this dinner party test? Well, Chris, it goes back to what we were talking about at the beginning, about where we are in healthcare with all of these different technologies and all of them kind of saying the exact same thing. So I like to tell clients and people that I meet, you know, when they allow me to nerd out a little bit on what I do, that, you know, imagine that you're sitting next to somebody at a dinner party. So in this example, we're going to say you have a telehealth technology. And so when you're sitting next to Sally at the dinner party and you have a telehealth company, you don't tell Sally about the product specs and features of your solution and, you know, go through what it can and can't do. Rather, what you do is you talk about the difference telehealth has made during the pandemic, for example, when people couldn't see their doctors. Maybe you talk about what is happening to make telehealth more accessible to the general population. We know that before the pandemic, a lot of us couldn't access telehealth. But now, you know, with insurance and payers, a lot of people are making strides for that. If you're really good, I like to say that you'll talk about a doctor who has been able to use telehealth to make a real difference in her patient's health outcomes and or a patient who used telehealth as a lifeline, right? Like connecting it to real life. And most likely, I would bet money on this, that if you did what I just described, Sally is going to continue to ask questions and express interest in the conversation. But on the other hand, if you started that conversation by checking off the technical elements of your solution, their interest in you in the conversation might sizzle immediately. You know, you might talk about kids or something, or Sally kind of turns her back to you and starts talking to somebody else. As thought leaders, we always need to be thinking about that and thinking about it from that perspective. We need what we say to be valuable to the audience what are they saying? What are they needing? What does that audience need to hear? And I would challenge 
anybody listening to this and anybody I come in contact to with, especially in the healthcare space, to, to start with the website. You and I worked on websites together. Start there and say, if somebody comes to my website and reads my description of my company, is it clear what I do and how I could help them do that? And if the answer is no, then, you know, start with the dinner party test. You know, it's a really simple example of what you can do to start positioning yourself as a leader and as somebody who is different in your offering than all of the other ones, because there are a lot out there right now. Kristen, this conversation, as always, is so interesting and fascinating. It gets me thinking about a lot of different things, but there may be people listening in that want to know a little bit more about you and how they can reach you online. What's the best way for them to do that? So I am on LinkedIn, obviously, um, Kristen Folder, F-A-U-L-D-E-R. And my website is Hearasay, which is H-E-U-R-I-S-A-Y.com, like heuristics for all of those language nerds out there. Well, we'll link to all of that in the show notes. So people, I encourage you to check out you know, all the things that Kristen publishes. And there's just so much stuff that I learned from following you, Kristen. So I think everyone else would benefit from that. Thanks again for joining our show today and sharing some of your thoughts. Thanks. I'm so glad to be here. Thanks for having me, Chris. Special thanks to Kristen for coming on the show. I, you know, I think content is an important topic. And again, I, I don't know, I feel like I say this every week, but um, gosh, this is just something that's been top of mind for me. You know, it's content as you rebuild your website, it's content uh, for social, it's content for, you know, think about patient testimonials and and that kind of thing. And, you know, serving these communities, um, you know, I just really appreciate her thoughts and, and kind of the thought process. And I don't know, something just stuck with me from earlier just around the you know, different, not better, and, you know, finding the right audience and some of those types of things. So anyway, it's great having her on the show for sure. Yeah, it's uh, content. It's ever moving. It's so great to know where to keep your eye on. So yeah, it was great. Quick plug for the TPS report. Uh, we mentioned the website earlier, touchpoint.health. If you sign up for that, you get a, a, an email to start your week with five articles and, and all that kind of fun stuff. Also on there are any upcoming conferences, um, want to give a quick plug for those certainly so you know you could click through sign up uh, register for the event uh chris we also have a webinar coming up right we do we have a webinar coming up at the end of this month with medicom that is about understanding where the, the new digitally empowered consumer is in healthcare and uh you and i are going to share a little bit about research and we're gonna, uh, that we've seen and what organizations can do to sort of embrace this new digitally focused healthcare consumer and how to make things better. More of that's going to be in the show notes. So you can click the link on it. It'll be the last week of March. So definitely uh, tune in. All right. couple of recommendations and we'll, uh, we'll call today. What, uh, what do you have this week? Reed, I'm going to recommend a TV show that I recently came across and I think it's amazing and weird at the same time. It's a show called severance and it's on Apple TV. Have you heard about this? Uh uh-uh. No, I haven't seen that one. Okay, so Severance is a, they call it an American science fiction psychological thriller. (laughs) Okay. Wow. Um, Yeah. And by the way, it's directed by Ben Stiller, of all people. Interesting. The premise is, is that there is a biotech corporation where some employees that work there undergo a medical procedure, i.e. a severance, that's the name of the medical procedure, to mentally separate their non-work memories from their work memories. 
know, the assumption here is that there's some people that, you know, engage in work that maybe is very top secret that no one wants to know about. And, or there are some people in the show that just do it just because they don't like their jobs so much. So they want to just severance their day memories from their night memories. It's an interesting premise. And I'll tell you, it, is really creepy. And of course there's an, there's like sort of this understory about what is going on here. Why does this happen? And obviously things start to unfold in a very creepy way. The thing I like about it is it is very well cast. Adam Scott is the kind of the lead of the show. And there are some others that support him, including John Turturro, uh, a very famous actor. And one of my favorites, Christopher Walken. Christopher Walken is in this show. So it's amazing. One of probably the best cast television series I've seen in a long time. And uh, it just premiered like in February of this year on Apple TV. It's really fascinating. Obviously, it's not for kids. So just so you know. But definitely for those of you that are might be interested in, uh, you know, kind of an uh, kind of a I don't know, a little bit offbeat, a psychological science fiction thriller. This is one to watch. I think there's going to be a total of like eight episodes. There are about four or five episodes into it right now. So it's really nice. good. That's my recommendation. Nice, nice. I'm going to make a recommendation for this time of year, which is March Madness. Um, it's, uh, you know, it started this past weekend uh, with uh, the first two rounds of basketball games, and it's, uh, it's, it's the best tournament in all of sports for sure. The specific recommendation is the te- to watch a Texas Tech game. The head coach for Texas Tech, a guy named Mark Adams, uh, oddly was the boss, uh, my boss. He was the general manager of a minor league hockey team where my wife and I met. I know all of this makes like little to no sense, um, and so I'm happy to explain further if anybody really cares. Uh, reach out <laughs> to me, but anyway, he's a former boss of ours, and so and he's a defensive mastermind. And so, if you want to see good defensive basketball, check out Texas Tech. But anyway, March Madness, you know, watch it, watch all of it. That's my, my recommendation. So there you go. That's awesome. That's uh, I love it. I love it. Very cool. Uh, Thanks for tuning in for another week. Again, touchpoint.health is the website. Reach out to Chris or I on the Twitters or uh, over on LinkedIn and uh, let us know how we're doing. If there's topics we should cover, people we should interview, we'd love to to connect. So, Chris Boyer, I'm Reed Smith, and we'll see you next week. This has been a Touchpoint Media production. To learn more about this show and others like it, please visit us online at touchpoint.health.